0: This has nothing to do with the fact that I'm no longer invited to be a guest on WAMC's Media Project. It has a little bit to do with the fact I'm developing a media ethics course for students at UAlbany. But in this chapter of On the Brink, I've decided we're going to look at three controversies, not at the controversies themselves, although they're interesting, but at how the media has performed in covering them. Uh, We'll be talking with three journalistic experts And again, the focus is on could the media do a better job explaining what's going on. The first will be election coverage, presidential elections, of course, we've had enough of that. Ken Tinkley, a longtime editor from upstate New York, now uh, a, a newsletter writer, will be talking about that. I'm going to an old friend of mine and journalist, Phyllis Jordan. She's now an education policy activist. She'll be talking about coverage of the right wing attack on universities. And finally, because what chapter of On the Brink is complete without going to another Mayo? We're going to go to Joanne Armeo to talk about the New York Times kind of outing the sexuality of Taylor Swift. Kevin Tingley, you are a longtime former editor in Glens Falls, New York. You're an author now. You write extensively about what you did as a longtime editor in Glens Falls. And you are a regular contributor to a very interesting newsletter on Substack. And I want to talk to you today about one of those uh, regular columns. I understand you're not going to be watching any any more TV coverage of the election, or at least the primaries.
1: Why is that? I think it was uh, probably three or four days before the Iowa caucuses, and uh, I I happened to turn on one of the, uh, um, okay, it was MSNBC, and they had a special special election, one week countdown to the Iowa caucuses, and I just finally kind of drew the line. I said, why? We know what the results are going to be. We know what the results in New Hampshire are going to be. We know what the super Tuesday is going to bring to us. And the only question is whether the guy who wins is, you know, going to be facing criminal, uh, you know, jail time. Mm-hmm. So at that point I, I said, no, enough is enough. And uh, I kind of, I don't like to call out uh, the media. You know, I I, I having been an editor for a long time. It's that it, we're easy scapegoats, I think. Uh, but in this case, I really think, you know, especially the cable news, the primetime shows, they're just missing the boat here. You know, this is just a waste of resources and a waste of everyone's time to make this into a horse race when the horse has already crossed the finish line.
0: Boy, I also, like you, am usually a defender of press practices. I figure that criticism comes from not understanding, but I don't get this at all. And I would go further than you. I think that there was nothing exciting or interesting about this race and both the coverage leading up to it, for example, putting the entire staff of MSNBC on coverage of the Iowa caucus. That is, it's it's deceptive. Um, and the language even is deceptive. To call it a blockbuster win, what we really had was 110,000 people voting in Iowa. Not, not even voting, they went to caucuses and kind of cast their choices. So 110,000, Trump got 51% of them. They are all overwhelmingly old, over the age of 50, white, and live in rural places. This is not representative. That is not a blockbuster win. So, isn't it isn't it a violation of the number one call of journalism to be
1: accurate? Well, I, I, I yeah, I think you know you're going here by I think by tradition, right? I mean, it's always right. been. I mean, you know, you go back to it. Obviously, you and I can go back to remember. I think Bobby Kennedy in 1968 jumped into the presidential race, in what, like April? You know, yeah. and won the California primary and, you know, was looking like he could be the, the candidate. So in those days, it was a much different world and, and things are a lot more orchestrated politically. You know, if you're not campaigning in Iowa, what, two years before even the caucuses, right, you're, you're, you're going to fall behind. I mean, it, it's all a little bit ridiculous. But, you know, the other point I think that needs to be pointed out is at, at, I think I use a lot of statistics in the column about the, you know, I hate to use the term mainstream media, but certainly the primetime media the cable news folks, the networks, and you look at the number of people, you know, there are 330 million people in this country and what 60 minutes is the best watched news show. And it draws 8 million people in a week, Mm -hmm. 8 million of the 330 million out there. Uh, Okay. A lot of them are children, but nevertheless and then when you go right on down the line and the network uh, evening news is is like four million and the primetime cable shows are like two million even pbs news hour which i love uh two million mm-hmm. people of 330 million people are watching this and it so i think there's an underlying uh concern here and not only that the media is shirking its responsibility uh, in Mm -hmm. in covering the right things, making this into a horse race. That's not a horse race, but There isn't that many people actually really paying any attention.
0: Paying any attention. You're right. It's like we're (laughs) speaking into a void to each other. There there were several other things about the Iowa caucus that were interesting and called into question some ethics. One was that uh, 30 minutes after they don't, the polls don't really close. It's not a poll, but you have to participate in the caucus. You have to be there by seven. So about 15 minutes, 15 to 30 minutes after the doors closed, all of the stations were calling the race for Trump. And uh, many people, uh, many representing the losers in, in the caucus, were saying, this isn't fair. You're, you're, you're even giving out results before people even had a chance to cast their choices. Um, I said, that's ridiculous. We 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 should be using data and forecasting and
1: the technology
0: we have now. Do you have a feeling about that? Were you well, outraged by
1: this? I, I, I guess I'm not outraged. I, I guess it's something that, well, they Nobody seems to have learned their lessons from some of these early calls that have been made in elections, going all the way back when Al Gore, I think, was called for what Florida or was it called for Bush, and then it was pulled back, right? Uh, uh, you know, back in the the 2000 election. Uh, but it's like, what's the hurry again? Especially like, what was there to gain by calling this? I mean, I called it on my column on Monday morning, so yeah. <laughs> I guess you want you want to be critical about calling it early, but I, yeah, I don't. I I think polling is very sophisticated these days, but I think it is also, you know, when you get down to the underlying reasons why people do certain things, I I don't know, you know, is there something about when you see the video of the folks in Iowa and they're throwing their boats into a paper bag, which has gone viral, obviously. And there's just something there that just seems a little, you know, about, you know, and this has been a criticism too, that, you know, Iowa has way too much poll in the primaries and because it's the first and it represents this kind of you know used to be i guess kind of the the snapshot of middle america you know the moderate uh, people and and that's not really the case anymore so um yeah yeah, uh, it, it, it is all uh i don't know not 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 something that's good for anyone
0: no, I totally agree with that. The The other uh, aspect of Iowa that has gotten a lot of attention from people concerned about media ethics is Trump's acceptance, his winning victorious speech. And several stations for the third speech- time. Right, right. And several, several stations, including CNN, refused to cover it live. And they had Jake Tappers talking over it, saying, you know, underneath me, you're hearing him telling a whole bunch of lies about immigrants. Is is that some big failing of journalists that we don't cover him objectively anymore or have we just learned our lesson?
1: Well, I guess it's a little of both. I, I mean, you know, it's like my wife and I sit around talking some nights and saying, you know, why can't they just have, you know, like in the debates when you, you, you go too long in your time, why can't they just shut off the microphone? We have that. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I if you can't hit, adhere to the rules, then, you know, that's the case. I mean, I don't know what he said in the acceptance speech. It does seem like that's a newsworthy moment uh, that we should cover that. Uh, but it's also if he's going to chalk it up to this shows that everybody is, uh, you know, against all my criminal indictments and knows it's all witch all right. maybe you do have to, you know, you have to think twice, but I think you do have to be careful about that when you have, it's a very unusual time, but you know, I think it does come back and hit you, you know, the, the media a little bit too below the belt because it, you know they're being accused of not being fair. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's
0: it. You know what what happened when Trump came in was we did in 2015, 16, and so on. We were covering him as we would any other presidential candidate right. and, and winner. And um, uh, many journalists, Ken Burns, the documentary, made a very famous speech at a college saying, well, "Why are we doing this?" He is a bad person. We should be saying that. And I remember Ken uh, Fred Hyatt at the Washington Post came out with an unusual front page editorial saying, don't vote for this man. We are not going to endorse him. He's a unique danger to democracy. And everyone, by everyone, I mean, we journalists hailed him as courageous, and what a good thing to do. In fact, didn't it make us look so prejudiced that many of his supporters now think we will never cover him fairly? Can we shoot ourselves in the foot by trying to do something we thought
1: was honest? Well, I, I, you know, I'm all uh, always been in favor of doing the right thing. And I think you always have to call them as you see them. When people would always call us out at the newspaper about an editorial or a position we took, I'd say, hey, we're always going to call them as we see them after doing our analysis, after doing what we think is right. And uh, I, I, you know, I think in that election in 2016, correct me if I'm wrong, I think out of all the major papers in the United States. Only two endorsed uh, Trump, so there were a lot of conservative outlets who had never ever endorsed a Democratic uh, presidential candidate, and uh, they didn't endorse Trump. So I, that tells you a lot, but it also maybe tells you a lot that people don't, didn't seem to care. Uh, yeah, they, that they yeah. had, they didn't care what their newspaper thought um and uh you know uh that's depressing but i think i think you can
0: you can lead to that conclusion uh i i I, let me let me go back to this horse racing thing because again i used to defend this i think it's important to know who's ahead as you go along who's winning who's losing I I, and joe biden's race just four years ago yeah yeah (laughs) <laughs> that's true I, I I was saying I think it, Joe Biden's race showed that he was way behind and then suddenly after not suddenly but uh, after after uh, the third primary you could see he was going to get it and then everything fell on so the covering the horse race was a story we don't still seem to have it right though you had some suggestions in your Substack column about what we should be covering instead of oh Trump won a blockbuster in Iowa talk about that
1: Yeah, I guess, you know, I'm coming back to old fashioned uh, ideas here, but, you know, I think you you start with something like immigration. You know, this supposedly is the biggest, biggest topic of contention between the two parties. Uh, You know, the Republicans claiming the Democrats all want open borders and Democrats saying, no, we don't. And and we're we're what we just want more. We want to discuss it and come up with the right solutions. And what about, you know, if, 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 you know, a PBS news hour took uh, its whole hour for an entire week and addressed immigration and, and, and dug down deep 60 minute types of reporting and to really explain to people what's going on at the border, what's been done in the past, what's been done in the future, what both sides are proposing and, and, and talk about. It. Now, I think that's a great idea. I think that is something that was desperately needed to get people to understand what's really going on. But there's also that part of me that says nobody would watch. <laughs>
0: yeah, that was going to be my next question to you. The same people who aren't reading endorsements, you're going to get them to sit down and listen to basically educational television.
1: It, it's like 60 Minutes. And I, I don't know about you, but I, I tape it every week and I watch 60 Minutes. And I, you know, not only learn things, but I, there's great feature stories, there's all kinds of things that I, I learned from from uh, that television program, and uh, yet, like I said, eight the average is eight million people a year uh, a week watch that show. Out of three hundred and thirty, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, so yeah, and that's entertaining. It's always very high in the ratings, in the top ten in the ratings. So it's done very well. It's 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 well respected, and yet still. It, people don't watch they're you know i i i guess i could go on and on about you know watching some of the shows they do watch you know whether it's mm-hmm. american idol is that even on anymore i don't know or the voice or or what have you yeah here's
0: another Possible topic: How do you how do you feel the media should be covering this? We got two old white guys running, very old. Uh, both sides are saying, "Oh, look, he's senile. Look at this. Look at this video I watched of Joe Biden, or look at this one of uh, of Donald Trump. They're both old men. Should we be writing about that, or is that not only biased, is that uh, ageist on the part of well- the media?"
1: Well I, I, you know as I approach the, that lovely age of 66, I guess I'm a little bit more uh, <laughs> sensitive to it uh, but you know the, I remember back when John McCain was running for president and one of the one of the reasons I think I ended up voting for Barack Obama was I thought John McCain was way too old to be running right. for president. that the demands of the office were just too tough. Now I, I'm correcting what he was what maybe? Was he even 70 or he would would have been 70? Probably wasn't even 70, but he would have been 70 while he was president. I felt the same way about Reagan way back when that he was too old to be uh, president as well. So I've always felt that, yeah, that is something that that needs to. But when what do you do when the two, you know, like you said, this kind of goes to a bigger issue that, you know, this is it's all kind of the fixes in. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's
0: done. It's done.
1: There really is no race. Nobody, you know, if you're the president, well, nobody can run against you. And that's, you know, or they cut you off at the knees. Uh, Your career ends. And, you know, same thing, I guess, with now former presidents. It's true.
0: And one other topic, one is Trump's extraordinary, never have we had a candidate like this, facing multiple, on many levels, legal challenges. Uh, Is the media shooting you know, the, I don't know, democracy in the foot by by pressing coverage of that, people in Iowa expressed their outrage that uh, he was being gone after and the media was just hounding him about it. Do you drop it? Do you cover it more? What's, what's the
1: right mix here? Yeah, it, it, I, I, I'm glad I'm not in that position anymore. It, it, it's like, yeah, if you put it on the front page, then you're being biased. Uh, if you ignore it, then you're, you know, being, I guess, unpatriotic. Uh, I, you know, that's one of the stories that, you know, spend a week going through a, a, a January 6th type investigation of what what uh, all the crimes that have been alleged here. Talk about the justice system, uh, 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 justice system 101 on how it works and how unlikely it is to get thousands and thousands of people to be part of this vast conspiracy, which is being alleged. Right. Uh, do you get, do you get some of them? Yeah, maybe. But even that, you know, uh, it's, 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 it's just a tough call. I mean, I think you've got to cover it. Uh, You, you've got to keep putting that stuff out there, but it keeps seeming playing right into uh, a certain campaign strategy. Yeah, it does seem that it does seem,
0: oh, sorry, sorry, Ken, it does seem that Trump has figured out Uh, exactly how the media works by tradition and has taken advantage of it. And the Democratic candidates have not. Do you you agree with that? Should we be changing? Should the candidates?
1: I I always cringe when somebody talks about how Donald Trump is a genius at anything. But if there is, it's certainly certainly his public relations acumen. He kind of, you know, if you if you piece together all the little uh, things he said over the years like, like, well, if you ever wanted, if I ever wanted to win the president, I'd have to run as a Republican. Well, he was a Democrat at the time. Well, he did that. And it actually proved to be quite true. And he knew exactly what buttons, buttons to push to get the people to vote for him. And he was like for the first time ever, a, a candidate who was shameless about saying anything that would get him one single vote. And, you know, it, it was, you know, if you, I'm sure there's probably been a couple of, uh, uh, you know, TV movies that have been like this, but, uh, We've, this was the the, the real thing and it, and it worked.
0: I yeah, I feel like we felt we in the media fell for it though. we saw what he was doing and we didn't stop it. And we know you said it just now people are not paying attention. I guess the usual rule is they won't start paying attention till maybe around Labor Day of this year. So what kind shouldn't we be gearing coverage to take that into account instead of doing it the same old way?
1: Yeah, I guess that's the question. I mean, you know, when you have uh, news outlets, especially newspapers that are diminished, less and less people to do those types of things, it's pretty easy to fall back on the traditional ways you've always done it. We have the plan. We know how to do it. We do that instead of, you know, it's the thing people don't seem to realize. To do good, strong journalism is time consuming and it's expensive. And you know, yeah. and then when you can't get somebody to to pay five ninety nine a month to subscribe to whether it's the New York Times or the Washington Post or any local newspaper, you know, because oh, I can get my news for free, and you know, well, on what on Facebook or, or you know what have mm-hmm. you, uh, mm-hmm. that that is all frightening. It, it, it does kind of all come back together uh, about uh, you know, and I constantly when I'm I'm out talking about my books or the or the newsletter. I'm always talking to about supporting the local media and, you know, and people are angry about it. They're angry that mm-hmm. my local newspaper only is three days a week and yeah. that it does, you know, a, a, a fraction of its local coverage that it used to have. And they right. said, why should I support that? They, they basically, it's a terrible product now, or it's not as good as it was. And that's uh, certainly disappointing, but I see but it'll get worse if you don't support it. <laughs> right, right. Then
0: you lose everything. That that is. Yeah. It's a very good question, though. We we have not done well in newspapers as we've downsized uh, and gotten more expensive at the same time. When what product has ever succeeded with that? We're talking uh, with. Ken Tingley, who is a a longtime newspaper editor, now an author and a newsletter writer for Substack, Uh, he writes about lots of stuff involving politics, national politics. And we are talking to him about the ethics of coverage, uh, especially with the Iowa caucuses. So one other thing, Ken, that we get complaints about from people is that Joe Biden has been a wonderful president. He's done all kinds of great things, more than any other modern president, and people don't seem to realize it. That's why his poll numbers are so low. Is that the fault of the press or of the White House or of the Democratic Party? Is there something that we're doing wrong and that is resulting in harm to Joe
1: Biden? Well, you know, there is this kind of old uh, adage, I think, uh, in the newspaper thing, and and we're kind of guilty of it. Uh, it, You're always trying to be really fair. You're trying to tell both sides of the story, you know, and and this used to come up with climate change. After a while on climate change, you know, where 97% of the scientists said it's real and 3% said, you know, and people said, well, if you're going to be fair, you have to tell both sides. Say, No, no, we have to tell 97% of the side. And just three percent of the time over here, so I think you have to be. I think it's really hard for journalists and people. I don't. I think are, would be surprised to hear this. It's hard for them to not kind of try to tell both sides' story, to try to bend over backwards to be fair. And I think, I think the trouble is that some of uh, Joe Biden's accomplishments, whether it's the infrastructure bill or you know getting some of this legislation passed with climate change. Uh, and, and and getting, uh, you know, the, these big spending uh, type things going that are really going to help a lot of people in a lot of states. Um, they're just not really sexy topics. Uh, where Donald Trump's out there talking about, you know, the, the culture wars and about, uh, yeah. the, you know, yeah. the abortion stuff at one point. He's trying to back away from it now, but yeah. he, he's talking about those types of things. So, it, you know, no matter, you know, if you're talking about a spending bill or the infrastructure bill, and you kind of go, you want people are just not going to be read about that. So, I mean, it really does come, come back to being a good citizen. You know, if you're, you're you're not you can't be a good citizen if you don't read a newspaper. I've always said this. You can't I agree with you. you. Look really <laughs> hard at the issues. And you have to read some of those really boring economic stories to find out You know why. You know, uh, it drives me crazy when people say things like, oh, well, the economy was better under Trump. And it's like, well, did you forget about COVID? <laughs> I mean, what happened there? You know, I mean, so I it, it, it's it's presidents don't have a lot of control over what happens with the economy. They just don't. No. That's not how it works. It's yes. The man economics 101 So, yeah, uh, I I just think sometimes uh, our readers are 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 not being uh, fair enough here and not doing their own due diligence.
0: You are listening to Ken Tingley, and I think you can tell how smart he is. He's got a little bit of passion about this topic, too. Take a minute, uh, Ken, and tell us about uh, your book, your newest book, which maybe some
1: people after hearing you will want to take a look at. Yeah, I've written three books. Uh, The first was The Last American Editor, which was a collection of my columns from uh, my days at the Post-Star in Glens Falls, New York. And it's a real people story, a lot of inspirational stories. Uh, about the people and events that kind of shape glens falls so i did the last american editor volume two just came out this past fall and uh, another 90 stories a lot of inspirational uh, stuff really you know it, you could read one three minutes a day and you'll feel better uh, doing it you know it's the other thing not many newspapers have columnists anymore you know, that used to be part of the fun part of the newspaper. It was the entertainment part. It was what made you think in the morning. It's what mm-hmm. you really look forward to. You had your favorite people you wanted to read. And there's not many of them left anymore. And that's, that's something that we've uh, uh, really lost. But if you really want to know the story of new- newspapers, The Last American Newspaper, it co- covers 20 years of a small town newspaper editor and uh, uh, it, some of the great work we did. But most importantly, how we made our community better. And that's what we're losing. I
0: I hope that we have made people think in our time here together, Ken. Um, I know that we agree that there have been big problems with press coverage again in the presidential race. After we did terribly the last time, we seem not to have learned very much. Trump still seems to be just riding herd over us Uh, We are falling uh, uh, prey to our desire to make the news sound more exciting than it is to not educate completely and to just get the jump on each other, which is really what's the point anymore. So thank you for being with us. And uh, I'm going to be asking you about this again. I'll try not to make it last minute. (laughs)
1: Look forward to it, Rosemary.
0: Okay. Thank you. On the Brink is brought to you by the Donna Frank team of Berkshire Hathaway Home Services, Blake Realtors. Uh, I am really proud of this sponsor. The team is led by my friend, Donna Federico, who is a specialist in luxury property. She's got like 18 years experience in real estate. Uh, Her team sets annual sales records. They are the best. They're experts. So I'm telling you, if you if you care right now or are interested in the future to buy, sell, invest, or just check out real estate, uh, write down this address. D-O-N-A-F-E-D, Donnafed at gmail.com. Or you can go to the uh Berkshire Hathaway Blake Hey, I just got done ordering two really gorgeous coffee mugs from Peacock Hots Pottery. Um, this is a founding sponsor of the podcast, and I just love their stuff. Honestly, it has nothing to do with their sponsoring us. Um, it's all the work of owner Ona Papa Giorgio, who I've discovered is an engineer by trade. And she's managed to combine the precision of her engineering background with the prettiness of her artistic disposition. And I think you are going to like their stuff as much as I do. Check it out at PeacockPots.com. I am so looking forward to this next conversation. I'm gonna be speaking with Phyllis Jordan, who is a a very old friend, not she's very old, our friendship is very old, sorry about that. (laughs) Uh, She is, we were reporters together in our youth back in Virginia, she went on to the Washington Post uh, along with some other places, and she's now involved in, because she's really smart, in uh, education policy making with the nonprofit called Ed Fund. Um, I have asked her to be on, uh, but there's nothing. I've asked her to be on the podcast because Phyllis Jordan was always the person that I would call when I wanted to discuss politics or weird stuff happening in the government I didn't understand. She is sane and rational right down the middle, um, just really smart. I think you're going to see that in a minute. And Phyllis, I've asked you on today to talk about the kind of right-wing attacks that we are seeing on universities. I know you are involved in education at a lower level, kindergarten through high school, but you are the daughter of a college administrator. You are a defender of colleges and universities, a strong believer in education. Is this different from the sort of things we saw in the 1960s when the uh, we were at the college. I'm saying we because I'm a college professor now. We were labeled as left-wing pinkos, communists out to pollute the minds of our young charges. Is it any different now? Do you see a difference in the attacks?
2: Well, thanks, Rosemary, for having me. I'm excited to be here. Mm-hmm. Um I do think what's different today is the calculation. Uh the the efforts by the right-wing folks. Efforts that they publicly acknowledge that they are setting people up and they are going after certain people. And the prime example, of course, is Claudine Gay, who was until a couple of weeks ago president of Harvard University. Mm-hmm. Um, she had a very bad performance at, uh, before Congress talking about um, anti Semitism on campus. I winced when I heard her talk because. It came across as legalistic, but also being the daughter of a college dean, it came across as this is how academics talk. They never yes. want to say anything emphatic. They want to say, well, there's the context to consider. And at a time when people are feeling, uh, you know, politicians and j- journalists like you and me, we want people to be emphatic. We want them to say this is wrong and and you're not going to get that from your typical academic.
0: I totally agree. And in fact, I remember listening to the hearing at which Gay and two other uh, college uh, presidents were testifying. And Elise Stefanik, who I do not personally like, I don't like her brand of politics at all. She asked the question and she said, yes or no, which you are right. That's what she likes, that's what politicians like, it's what reporters like, yes or no. And then she asked a question that did have a nuance. She said, can you say whether calling for genocide uh, of Jewish people would violate your school codes? And there were two factors to that. One was nobody had ever called for that, no place in America. And two, calling for genocide is different than activating for it it's it's not hate speech under any supreme court so there's all this nuance to it i was sympathetic to the college presidents trying to give a contextual contexturized answer trying to 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 parse it all out free speech different than action you once you you knew though what was going to happen
2: right i could see the whole thing playing out because a, a, an academic does not want to uh be too declarative um the other piece with her of course is these allegations of plagiarism um she has done a number of studies there are a number of places in the studies where she borrows language from other people now i take a look at i took a look at that i read a lot of research for my work in every study that you do you have your main findings but you also have a little section where you summarize what everybody else has done like this study says that and this study says that and her language what we wouldn't the journalism world call boilerplate was very similar to other people's boilerplate or even what the people who did the research themselves
3: correct
2: how they described their research like one or two sentences this is not a cardinal sin of research a cardinal sin of research would be faking your data uh taking somebody else's theory and calling it your own. She did not do these things. She did, however, do things that would have gotten college freshmen at Harvard in trouble. So I don't know that it was a cardinal sin or a mortal sin, but it certainly was problematic. And you add that on to the political pressure that followed that hearing and that was the end of her. Now, whether they're gonna be coming after other college presidents remains to be seen. Um, also, the Penn president resigned before, even
0: even before Gay. Even before and that, she
2: yes, right. she just resigned because of the the right. event. I mean, you know, we had this situation at Stanford last year where a student, right. Peter Baker's and Susan Glasser's yes. son, um, was found that the president had actually faked his research or faked his data. Which is a cardinal sin, and that president was forced to resign. This is not the same thing. Uh, beyond singling out, singling out, you know, people, um, there are these broader issues. For instance, in Florida today, the board of um, the higher education board voted to spend nothing on DEI, uh, right. diversity, inclusion, and whatever E is equity. Uh, and instead and take out all sociology classes and replace them with American history. And it just seems that um, that's a bit extreme. And, um, you know, if I had a child looking at colleges right now, I don't know why we would want to send them to a mm-hmm. college in Florida. I think that's a really good point. Should the media
0: feel guilty for the way this story has been covered? This, as you say, intentional attack, I, I'm, why were those three presidents called before Congress all women, one of them a woman of color? Yes. I, I, we've not read about that. Um, I've not read anything much, and, and I, I hate when people say I haven't read it, because how would I even hear about it? But there's not been much written about what is Congress doing negotiating what is and is not plagiarism or the degree of plagiarism? Exactly.
2: Is that is that what Congress should be spending its time is- on? Congress has a lot of other things on their plate, like funding the government, paying for uh, Ukraine and other priorities. This is nonsense that Congress is involved with this. And I do feel like, especially the New York Times, wrote a whole lot about Claudine Gay, the president of Harvard. I mean, I just don't think in the scheme of things that need covering, that needed that much coverage. Um, I mean, I would imagine they wrote more about her than they wrote about this report showing that Donald Trump has um, you know, got Take, all his- money, yeah,
0: taking money from foreign governments, right? right. A, a possible constitutional violation. Um, you know, I, I the other thing we have to talk about is Bill Ackman, who is a oh, billionaire wow. hedge fund manager who led the charge to get Claudine Gay out. And it turns out that his own wife, who is a well-known academic, had her own little plagiarism problem. She admitted to it. And her plagiarism, uh, this is the worst, I think. I, I, she, she, she should definitely have the book slammed at her. She copied the words out of Wikipedia. Which is something, you know, I, I teach my college freshmen. Don't ever, you can read Wikipedia, don't ever quote them. Don't even put them, quote them by name. And she she put that in a PhD dissertation. Yeah. And I guess Business Insider wrote about this. He's threatening them with a the lawsuit, which most lawyers say is ridiculous. But he played a huge role in the ouster of the first black president of Harvard. It just all reeks to me of sexism and racism as well as a political attack from the
2: right right and i do think that that is a certain sweet karma uh for him that uh he, or hypocrisy that his own wife has um issues which plays into i'm not i'm not forgiving anything claudine gay did but there is a sense among academics that a lot of people do this sort of thing that claudine claudine gay did which is just and, and and Bill Ackman's wife too. The other issue with Bill Ackman this just came out this today or I just saw it today or yesterday, is he um, was at a private dinner with Joe Biden and Joe Biden started to say something. He said he didn't run in twenty fifth in 2016 because his son had just died. He said, but I'm not going to talk any right. anymore about that And Bill Ackman says, well, what's stopping you? You're always talking about it. And oh wow. Joe Biden turned to the person next to him and said, who is this asshole? <laughs> you and can say then, that. You
0: can say this word on a podcast.
2: Yeah. Good. Um, and, and then and, laid into him and said, you don't know me. I don't know you, but you do not. You did not dismiss the um, memory of my son. That's crazy.
0: Yeah. And Biden has had his own issues with plagiarism. We might point out. This um, is true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would like to say I've yet to see the New York Times or any place else do a whole discussion on plagiarism. The New York Times has had its problem with plagiarism, yeah. But it, it is it's very difficult for my students sometimes to tell what really is right and what is wrong. Um, all through high school, you write research papers, which is taking the work of others, the words of others, and synthesizing it in some way. That's that's a very fine line into not copying the words of others. Right. right. Um it's and and again I think the media should have a guilty conscience because we have covered this the way Elise Stefanik ran that meeting. Yes or no?
2: And right. it's not that easy. And it's it's a very nuanced question. And yes, the media does not always do nuance well. Yeah, we never do it well, do we? It, it's it's a, <laughs> You it's and a, I did most. Man. Yeah, we were
0: terrific, Addie. You're right. I, I, how could I forget? We're talking with Phyllis Jordan, who is a fabulous former editor and reporter and now works on policy with a education policy with a um, nonprofit called EdFund. If they're not under political attack, universities and colleges increasingly are under a sort of economic attack. We are seeing enrollment plummet in many public and private schools, and especially small private colleges are in trouble right here in Albany, New York. The 100-year-old St. Rose College is going to shut down. They just, they're bankrupt. And Phyllis, you have a kind of unique history with that, too, because you were part of a movement to save Sweetbriar, your own alma mater. Can you tell us about that?
2: Yeah, well, Sweetbriar is a small college, a woman's college in Virginia. And in 2015, uh, the board there decided they couldn't make it, but they were just going to shut down the college. And the alumni said, oh, no, you don't, Uh, filed a lawsuit, raised millions of dollars and basically got the keys back to the college. Um, the The decision to shut it down was in March. They got the keys back to the college in July, appointed a new president. All the students had transferred away and no freshmen had come, but they got about half the students to come back. And they've we've been building up the uh, enrollment ever since. Um, we've also raised like $140 million over the last eight years. Amazing. Amazing. It's just it, you know, it's a woman's college, a southern woman's college. And you had women who would like marry a guy from UVA and they would give ten thousand dollars to UVA and a hundred dollars to sweeper. Now they flipped it. Um, but you know, a couple of things were going on. Um, and it in sweeper is still not out of the woods. They're still raising money, they're still trying to get enrollment up. But um there is a dip and in in, in the number of students of college age is sort of cyclical. But right now, in the next five to 10 years, the number of college age students is going to drop by about 20 percent. You add into that the pandemic, which disrupted a lot of kids' education and a lot of kids decided not to go to college, it just sort of got a lot of kids off track. So there's a smaller pool of students right now. And um, and then, you know, there's just a lot of demand and in Tuition keeps rising. So these small colleges are off, are having trouble getting the students they need, getting the fundraising they need, you know, keeping up with their facilities and things like that. So you have places closing. And the problem, as you probably are figuring this out in Albany, is that these institutions are often an anchor for a community, a neighborhood Absolutely. or even a city in where Sweet Bar is, is in rural Virginia, um, you know, when if that school had gone under like a bunch of restaurants and hotels would have gone under, um, there wouldn't have been, you know, all the professors living there and going to the grocery store or you know, that sort of thing. So oh, and, uh, in
0: Albany, if I can jump here, you yeah. are absolutely right. They own almost a hundred buildings in the heart of Albany. Uh, all around it is a student ghetto. The, the rental properties are all student or professors that will all go away without, and, People are, are are jumping around trying to figure out what can be done.
2: Is there any chance they can save it? Is it definitely closing?
0: I think it's definitely closing. That there's some problem. The school was not exactly transparent. Uh, St. Rose was not exactly transparent about the extent of the problem and even went seeking money for a new soccer fields from the state. So the governor's saying, you know, oh, how was I, and the mayor, they're saying, how are we supposed to know anything that was amiss rem- a yeah. when you're doing that? So I, yeah. I don't know, but well, universities well, in trouble. What, what have we come to?
2: Yeah, and, you know, you've got places shutting down. What you've also got are consolidations, um, places that are um, – And I'm going to get this wrong, Wheelock, I think it is, which is near Boston, consolidated Mm -hmm. with Boston University. And now you have the Wheelock School of Education at Boston. Um, Mills College out in California, consolidated with Northeastern in Boston. Uh, These places are basically being subsumed by these uh, more successful universities. and, but, in the process of people who are are students there, the people who are alumni really lose something. and And often these small colleges have a very distinctive mission. And, as I said, they're anchors for their communities. So it's yeah. a, it's, it's very sad. What we probably do, we probably have an overabundance of college uh, seats, at least for right now.
0: Absolutely, because they were set up for the the baby boomer generation, and that has much diminished since. Even the state schools of New York,
2: several of those schools are in trouble. There just is not enough enrollment for it. Well, and those have grown so much in the last years. There's so much construction. Virginia Tech, you know, in Virginia, is huge in adding all these dormitories and things like that. Um, and you feel like here, all these small colleges in Virginia are just dying for students and right. tech's got, you know, too many. Um, but yes. And, and the, uh, interestingly, a lot of these large universities are trying to create a small college field. They'll be like, a, I don't know if you have this University of Albany, but like University of Maryland has something called the gemstone program. My niece was in where right. you're, it's, you're in a small cohort and you're doing, she was doing sciences and there's a lot of the honors colleges and things like that to try to make a small college experience for people at a state university, but it seems like you could maybe just use the small colleges.
0: To uh to round this out and close, Phyllis, I'll i I leave with this question. Uh, does the media have a responsibility that you can see, or is there anything that it can they can do to protect and um help universities. We're in the same business, educating and forming. Don't we owe some sort of allegiance to our universities in
2: trouble now? I do think we could, that a couple of things are going on too, that the, they could be a straight lawn drain. Like there's a big push for free college. If you put, if you make state universities free, what do you do into small private institutions? They're like, cutting mm-hmm. them dead. Um, So drawing those connections between and also when states are pumping more and more money into their public colleges to build new facilities, you know, think about the consequences for the small colleges in your state. And is this something you need to do or there are more ways you could partner? Um, I mean, I don't see you. I don't see. Newspapers doing much about small colleges. I will say that the Washington Post um, has written a couple of stories about sweeper and I'm, you know, grateful for well, that. That's
0: but that's for you. You you push, <laughs> I was part of the influence
2: of you strong women advocating for a sweeper. Well, there's that. Um, but yeah, <laughs> but a sweeper is doing interesting things. Um, you yeah. know, but the, they've just started a, sorry, I'll just go off for a tiny minute here. Uh, they've started a... Um, Agriculture program, so they have thirty two hundred acres. They're out in the middle of nowhere. They're uh got a now twenty six hundred um, square foot greenhouse where they're growing all the vegetables for their dining hall. Girls are learning cool. how to do agriculture and do tomatoes varieties. They're also selling it at uh, to the community, like at a farmers market. Um, they have their they've leased eighteen acres to vineyards who need, uh. Um, wow who need to have, say, the wine the grapes were grown in Virginia for it to be considered a Virginia wine. And they run out of space, so they're growing all their grapes at Sweeper. And the students are out there doing soil samples and science. So, and they've also got an apiary where they created, harvested 800 pounds of honey. <laughs>
0: Okay, so, this anyway. is very creative and, and fun, but as a taxpayer, why should I care about small private institutions? They're a business. If they can't run it and make a profit, why why is that my fault?
2: Why do I care about it? Because they <laughs> offer something different than a public university does. They offer a smaller, more personal experience. They offer a chance for kids to have personalized learning, which we're all saying is great stuff. And And they anchor communities. They provide jobs. They provide um, tomatoes. Uh,
0: (laughs) (laughs) And, yeah, a source of consumers for lots of other businesses. Yeah, they they are. They
2: they support communities and they, they provide a great education for students.
0: Phyllis, this was great. I'm going to be asking you back again in the future. This is only a part of a segment. we got to bring you back on again. You you proved again that I was right.
2: You're smart and you know this stuff. Thank you. All right. Good to see you, Rosemary. Take care. (laughs) Okay. Take care. (laughs)
0: If you are looking for a venue for a family reunion, a corporate gathering, a wedding, I've got a place for you. It's in the woods of Bennington, Vermont. It's a fabulous old house, sleeps up to 12. It was built by this uh, weird kind of genius. He's got fireplaces and and a hot tub, and it's, you can tell I've been here. My favorite thing is probably the pirate ship in the sandbox in the backyard. It's fabulous. It's called Karen's Place. And during these dreary, wintry months, you can get it for a discount. Um, it's worth looking at, worth checking out. Um, The proprietor is a friend of mine, Jenny Dewar, and you can find out more at www.KarensPlaceBT.com. Karen, let me tell you, spelled K-A-R-I-N-S. We get lots of comments, all good, about the music we play leading in and leading out of the show and in between the segments. All of it is composed by my friend, composer David Keckley. If you like the music, if you want to see more of what he's done, hear it, you can go to Pine Valley Press, all one word, dot Word.com. That's based in Williamstown, Massachusetts. Welcome back to the third segment of this chapter of uh, On the Brink. The New York Times set off something of a controversy in at least the music world when it ran recently a very long 5,000-word article, an opinion piece, not a news article, about Taylor Swift and her sexuality. Uh, I'm going to now speak with uh, Joanne Armeo, who is a longtime uh, editorial writer and before that editor of the Washington Post. She's also my sister. Joanne, did you read the article? I did. opinion piece. I did. All right. Had that come to you, would you have run it? No. No. And tell tell us why not.
3: Well, why? I mean, they are like uh, questioning the sexuality of something, bringing it in. What is the point of it? Okay, she's gay. She's not gay. Who the hell cares? Um, I just did. They do it because they wanted clicks. Because anything that you have with Taylor Swift is going to get clicks. I just was absolutely appalled by the piece. And what most appalled me was when I got down to the end and the writer tried to justify this piece of garbage by saying, oh, some might question like why we're like writing about this. Some would say this is too salacious, it's too like gossip driven, but we need to delve into it because these are the issues at the point of our culture. What trash, what absolute (laughs) trash, what a presumptuous, piece of i am i'm trying to not use obscenities here but only obscenities can apply to this article and i'm completely appalled and okay there are editors at the at the new york times who got fired for writing pieces running pieces by tom cotton and other things someone should get fired for running this piece well, I'm gonna ask you about editorial policies in a minute, and, uh, but
0: it won't surprise you too much, Joanne. I don't entirely agree. The article was interesting. Uh, We're at a time when talk of sexuality is uh, so interesting. It's intergenerationally different. Our generation, we're baby boomers, don't understand it in the same way our children and grandchildren do. And Taylor Swift's pretty public. Her lyrics, her stances have been very public. Why is this not legitimate for for discourse?
3: Well, why does it, her lyrics, why does it make a difference whether or not she's gay or not? I mean, if if she's if she's straight, um, whatever the things that she says about these issues, they should stand on their own. Um, it doesn't have to be tied to it. These are personal, private things, and it's a certain thing. I like things, okay, it's like Taylor Swift, so she's like open game for everyone. And I do think it has to do with clicks because you put Taylor Swift up there, and you're going to get a lot of clicks. Would they write about this about like a male uh, star singer who's been like? whose sexuality has been questioned? I don't think so. Hmm.
0: If it were Donald Trump and you could question his sexuality, he's Tim also Scott.
3: clickbait. Yeah, Tim, Tim Scott. Scott. Okay, okay, we have written
0: about him. That's okay. a good has, one. Has,
3: has the New York Times done a 5,000-word piece on Tim Scott? I don't think so. Tim Scott, uh, his sexuality
0: was called into question when he was in a debate, uh, when he's, he suddenly brings up a girlfriend no one had ever heard about. It certainly was written about. Sexuality is now something we do write about. It is a huge cultural issue. It's part of the culture wars. And Taylor Swift plays into that. She also plays into, she uses her power as a celebrity. So why would that not be considered public? It's not private when you write music about it and take stands, uh,
3: pro-LGBT stands, as she does. You know, I think, you know, I'm not an expert in songwriting. But I would guess that like you could take it like Bob Dylan stuff and you could go and you could parse Bob Dylan stuff and you could come up with stuff to suggest, OK, maybe he is like a cannibal. Maybe he is like, what? I mean, whatever to do it.
0: <laughs> well, OK, but Bob Dylan doesn't perform in rainbow colored outfits with butterflies in the back and all these colors that that suggest, oh, yeah, I'm interested. He doesn't go to pride parades. He,
3: she is a public advocate for, for the gay community. So we have to basically say we. Have, it's, it's, it's the New York Times' responsibility to out her and to label her? Well, of course, that- that's, that's the ethical rule that we're discussing.
0: It has now become um, a very big no-no to out people who do not ask to be outed. And I have to say that the thing that troubles me the most about this is that Taylor Swift has sort of denied being anything other than heterosexual in the past. She has described herself as a, an ally.
4: Okay. i It's not the same. Okay. Because <laughs> all of you guys are <laughs> talking about these things that are implied and assumed and this, and Taylor hasn't done this and Taylor hasn't done this. You know what Taylor Swift has done? Had very public relationships and breakups with very public actors and musicians like John Mayer and Toby Maguire and uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. And you know what's resulted in them? Lyrics that have won her Grammys. Let's talk about the fact that the New York Times and all of the circumstantial evidence that this person wrote the article on was factually incorrect. All of the songs she talked about. Most Taylor Swift fans know what the inspiration of those songs are. You know why? Because Taylor Swift has made millions of dollars off of movies and books and all of this other merchandise that explains literally what every song means. And as for someone who had all too well on repeat after the last time their heart was broken, I know that that's about Jake Gyllenhaal (laughs) and the sister in there is about Maggie Gyllenhaal. So let's talk about the real facts. Why did the New York Times publish an article that very easily with 15 minutes worth of research by a 16-year-old Taylor Swift fan Uh, could have disproven that it was a bunch of bullshit?
0: That that loud mansplaining you just heard was from our executive producer, Zachary Grady.
4: Okay, hold on. I have a second question here and I don't mean to take away from my first question, but for the rest of time, if a man explained anything? Is that a problem? I'm sorry, I'm a man and you're women, but I know more about Taylor Swift than you do. Are you denying
3: I agree with you, Zach, and I don't think you mansplain because you were telling me things that I didn't know because I don't really know Taylor Swift. My only, the only thing I know about Taylor Swift is that my granddaughter loves the song she sings in Sing, which is like, shake it off. Um, That's the only thing that I know. So I'm like- my. My granddaughter also knows Taylor Swift, but I
0: also have read and followed her because she is incredibly newsworthy. She's the Time Magazine person of the year. You don't get that by just being a singer. You get it by becoming a cultural model, which she is. And Zach, let me point out to you that Taylor Swift is known for bios for for biological or what do you call it, biographical uh lyrics, which is why her lyrics are so important in this. Is she saying, Anna Marks, the writer asked, that I am bisexual. And being bisexual means that of course she could have kinds of all kinds of relationships, according even according to uh even including her relationship with her football player now. That does not preclude her being bisexual.
4: Okay. I so understand. there's
0: nothing that there's nothing, it's not like because she had like you know, fancy boyfriends, that doesn't mean she's bisexual.
4: Please, I, I understand. give me a break. I understand all of that. But nowhere in that article was there a shred of actual sourceable evidence when you are the New York Times, the premier or one of the premier, I don't care that's an opinion article, you are one of the premier newspapers on the face of this planet. Have some actual sourceable documentation or don't publish it because honestly who does care
0: and okay well you got wait a minute I need
4: by the way wait a minute
3: minute.
0: this is this was not an article a news article published to say oh look taylor swift is gay or bisexual there is no yes it absolutely no it was not it exactly was that's what no it wasn't put
3: it out there it was like oh That was it. That was all the buzzes about that Taylor Swift is gay. That was the whole point of this thing, and it was, and it was so okay to use Miss Marx's words. It was salacious and gossip mongering, and it was beneath the wash the New York Times, and they shouldn't have run it. That's fine.
0: well, now now that you've had your loud say, too, let me add, let me interject that I just disagree. If you were going to judge it as a news article, then where's the quote, the chance for Taylor Swift to respond? Where's Kelsey in this? He's not quoted. This is an article saying that when someone of this magnitude writes lyrics that are very open to interpretation, that that could open up a discussion about uh, sexuality, about queerness in our culture. And that's
3: legitimate. That is what the okay. New York Times should be writing okay. about. We can have, we can have a discussion about that whether or not she is like queer or not. I, I she can broke Can we say queer when, now? She does, and the and Miss Marks does. So oh. it's not an. So no uh, I don't know. For me, for, the question is like, when do you out people? And for me, the problem always is was, what if you have like a politician, an office holder. Who is like espousing like and voting for anti-gay measures and is hostile to the gay community? But everyone yes. knows, knows he's gay. And I and I, have, even in those circumstances, I would err on the side of caution. I would not. I would not cross that line. Maybe I'm conservative. Maybe I'm a dinosaur. But I would not cross that line. Well I mean that's been the the uh the rumors I guess more than
0: rumors for years about Lindsey Graham and there's no article ever published that said he is the gay man. So I I I get that you're talking about destroying a reputation. Are you really destroying her reputation if she's bisexual? Well, isn't, no. Is
3: it it isn't, isn't, isn't there more to be gained by like writing about Lindsey Graham or or Tim Scott another one who like has like questions about it? Right. Which right. My view is is that like no I don't think that you go I mean I, For me, the question is, like, when does, like, the public interest does it? So, like, when the hypocrisy comes into it. With Taylor Swift, I don't see hypocrisy. I don't see hypocrisy. So why, why do that?
0: Well, that's because your right. measure here is hypocrisy. Right. Any anything about Taylor Swift is newsworthy. She is another, I don't know, one of the Kardashians. So that, makes
3: her, that makes her fair game. That makes her completely fair game. Oh, jo- that's right. my
0: question, Joanne. That's my question. And, she, is, and I don't, What are the what are the I,
3: I rules on invasion of privacy? What should be the rules on invasion of privacy? I think I think that the rules that they should they should apply, and they should not. You should they should not be changed for how like popular are because well, what are they? What
0: are they? What are your rules on, on, on any, anybody you're writing about?
3: Has uh, well, to, they would, have to be hypocritical. I would, I would, I would respect Lindsey Graham. I would respect Taylor Swift. I would respect Jodie Foster. I mean, I'm not interested because Jodie Foster is now out with, she's, you know, talking about how, like for many years, she was very, she very it. private. She was very, very private. That was her business. That was fine. Um,
4: um uh-huh. listen well, part- I will say, oh, here, no hold on hold on because there are some things that you have said <laughs> are just incredible at this point in time first of who, all that who has said you you yeah invasion of privacy invasion of privacy to invade the privacy maybe give someone a phone call who actually knows what they're talking about instead of just making wild accusations based upon lyrics and if this wasn't about- they're not
0: accusations They're not outing her
4: publicly based upon her lyrics. That is an accusation.
0: Raising questions about what she's really
3: saying.
4: Okay. She's a public artist.
3: (laughs) Okay, She's a public artist. Okay. Hasn't this writer also had a little bit of a reputation for doing this? That like, okay, I'm going to like make like headlines by like questioning the sexuality of people. That's my shtick. Okay, it's getting a little bit old, okay? Has she done this before, Joanne? Tell us about that. I don't, Harry I'm not Styles. sure. I was, yeah. Harry Styles. Tell us, tell us what she did. I don't know enough about it because I was just like, I was like reading this stuff because I'm not like an expert in this. But yes, so apparently she's done this before. And I, you know, for me, again, what did it for me was that like mealy mouth disclaimer at the end, which is like someone thinks that this is too salacious, this is too gossip, mom, but we're gonna but I'm gonna do it anyway. I'm gonna do it anyway. I, it's gonna give me clicks and people are gonna be talking about. It. You and I are talking about it. So she has like achieved her aim, which is the same thing that Donald Trump, Trump does every time. So I oh do and I- Joanne, so she's a writer
0: and as you know, she does not get to decide these things herself. There were editors who sat there and, and said, Yeah, this is legit. What what can you imagine that discussion? You've been in discussions like that. Why do you think they went with it?
4: For clicks. You know. For the clicks, New York,
0: the New York Times doesn't have to worry about clicks. They don't have yes, to it does. Yes, it tricks. does.
4: The New York Times just shut down its sports department because it could not fin- financially afford to have one anymore. Yes, it does. Newspapers are doing things for clicks. If this was about the lyrics, how come she didn't write an article when R. Kelly was releasing it lyrics like "Age isn't nothing but a number." This wasn't about the lyrics. This wasn't about anything. This was about clicks. It's the same reason that people at the beginning of the season started writing articles. Oh, is this just stage or Travis and Taylor are a real thing? It's about okay. a- <laughs> clicks. Also, <laughs> okay, also okay. I about- love you, but I, I cannot on.
3: believe that you're defending this piece. And so, like, why do people run these things? Who knows? Sometimes like editors are like zoned out, they don't pay attention. Uh, they've had too much wine. I mean, who who knows why this piece <laughs> ran? I don't know. But I don't think that they should have run it. I wouldn't have run but, it.
0: Uh, and I, I hope I, I hope, I've i hope, been arguing. I've been arguing in defense of it because I, I, I think these are important issues. I, I find that uh, especially print publications are so careful and precise, and they don't push push all the buttons. And this one does. Maybe it went over the line. Okay, I'm not gonna cannot defend it that strongly. But to talk about sexuality, to talk about how you interpret an artist's work. I think those are things that should be in newspapers. I love do you realize that we're yelling at each other and more hyped up about this than about either of the discussions in the last two segments, which were about presidential politics and attacks on our university systems. And this is perhaps the least important. Whether this young singer, remarkable talent, is is uh, gay or straight oh, or bisexual.
3: And, Swift, and we will get more clicks on Taylor on uh, this. And Donald Trump <laughs> or Claudine Gay, okay?
4: And Which is why
3: the New, the York, New York Times, Times did it. Yeah, piece, yeah.
4: Okay. And this goes to the point that this the conversation is not about Taylor Swift. The conversation goes back to the fact of the New York Times being a responsible journalistic outlet and doing its job as writers and editors and making sure things that aren't verified, that aren't sourced and that are just lies and uh circumstantial evidence. It's n- it is. It okay. is. There isn't did one piece. Okay. Okay.
3: Did the did the writer? Okay. I, I have to go back and reread the piece. Did the writer in this place a call to Taylor Swift? No. There's no. If she did, question? if she did, she did not write that she did. Okay. And there's well, no.
0: There's no call to her uh, publicist. There's no call to to. Okay. Uh, her football player. None of that. No. Okay. It's that's a problem
3: piece. Okay. What? Okay. So you asked my experience. My experience is that if we were to do something like that, we would have insisted. Okay, we're gonna run this piece, but we're we're gonna give them the courtesy of letting them know what we're writing on and letting them respond to this. And clearly this person didn't care about that.
4: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I I I, I, I can't.
3: I can't disagree with that.
0: Um, okay. I, I want to point out to our listeners that our executive producer is so incised over this, that he is neglected to keep track of the time. I have no idea <laughs> where we are. In this we program. are 17 oh, minutes into this <laughs>
4: segment. And okay. just so we all know, our host also has forgot to remind you that we're talking with Joanne, Armel. The
0: Oh, I thought that was evident. <laughs> I'm I don't, I don't. I don't talk to my to my friends this way. Only my sisters.
3: Okay.
0: <laughs> Go ahead, Joanne. What were you going to say? You retired. Just saying
3: I'm retired from the Washington Post. We we'll just have to make clear that I'm retired from the Washington Post. It has been great fun. Uh,
0: <laughs> I would like to end this evening uh, with a toast. Okay, Joanne, you're all ready for this. I know. I'm all ready. Right. Of course, year.
3: yes. I'm fueled up.
0: Okay, this is a toast to ethical journalists. Yeah. When I tell people that I teach media ethics, their usual responses are very annoying. Oh, are there any? And yes, there are. But getting things right and accurate, covering all of the different possible nuances, being fair, exposing the biases of all the people you talk to, that is really, really hard. And uh, it's not an easy task. Uh, we keep trying it we get criticized no matter what we do as a journalist but I want to make a toast to those journalists those independent journalists who at least try to get it right here here here.